Hello, lovely people. How are you? I hope you're good and thank you so much for listening. Now, before we start, can I ask you a little favour? If you could possibly rate and review this episode and subscribe to this podcast, well, that would be wonderful. Somehow it helps other people discover the podcast and our aim here is to help as many with their next chapters as possible. Now, get ready to meet one of the most brilliant, encouraging and wonderful women writing fiction today, Katie Ford. And just give yourself a little bit of time, which is yours, even if other people do suffer like they don't have things ironed. To be honest, they can cope. You know, just have that time for you. Katie was a mother looking after her three children and their dogs while her husband Desmond was away at sea when she had that feeling as if, well, something was missing, like a missing piece of a jigsaw puzzle. Katie started writing Mills and Boone's novels, carving out moments while she was running her children's baths. For eight years, eight years, she faced rejections, but she never gave up. Her writing may not have been right for Mills and Boone, but then she found the agent and publisher who loved her work. Katie has just written her 30th novel. Her books have sold in their millions just in the UK alone as well as all over the world. But what's even more special about Katie is how supportive she is to other writers. She's been the president of the Romantic Novelist Association for more than 10 years and has helped so many aspiring authors as well as setting up the Katie Ford Bursary Scheme. We discuss Katie's method acting style of research, how going to a ballet school when she struggled to dance taught her resilience and the importance of finding her tribe and what a tribe she has. Katie has built a career from her passion all around the family she adores at their home in Gloucestershire and she gives some wonderful advice to help you do the same, whatever your missing piece of the puzzle may be. Hello and welcome to The Next Chapter by Ellie Barker. The idea behind this podcast is that as I start my next chapter from journalist to author, I speak with incredible people who've already started their next chapters in the hope it might help you with your next chapter or at the very least you'll just enjoy the conversation. So here she is, the wonderful Katie Ford. Katie Ford, I can't believe I'm going to say this because it's such an honour to do this, but welcome to The Next Chapter with Ellie Barker. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really flattered to be invited. I love podcasts. I think they're a terrific way to communicate. So it's really nice to be on one. Yeah, and to be, well, we're going to get into this, but to be here in conversation with the Romantic Novelist Association president, for me, I feel like (laughs) this is me. I'm the presence of royalty. So I'm going to be on my best behaviour and we're just going to crack on with it. So we start as ever, Katie, with the prologue. Now, you were born in Wimbledon and I understand that you have a sister. Is that right? I do have a sister who lives near me in Minchin Hampton. How lovely. Yes, I was actually born in London, but I was brought up in Wimbledon. We moved there when I was about six. Okay. So it's really the home, you know, my home patch. And what kind of upbringing did you have, Katie? How would you describe it? Well, it was a very booky household. Um, I remember my father, who was a school teacher, during the school holidays would take us to the library every day because he was a great reader and we would get through those little children's books, you know, in a day, no problem. And so we all read a lot and we didn't have television. So we used to read and play cards. Um, I played bridge at a very early age and I'm not sure I can remember it, but um, it was that sort of house. So we used to do a lot of talking around the kitchen table. So words 
use of language and everything was always quite up there. And nobody really talked down to us. Nobody used smaller words to make it easier to understand. To be honest, I did spend an awful lot of my early childhood very, very confused because I didn't understand why what my mother called was uh, Vim was spelt A-J-A-X. I just didn't (laughs) get it. And, um, you know, so life was full of confusions for me. But looking back, it was a very good basis for becoming a writer. Mm, It really was. And did you, I mean, what were you like at school? What were your subjects at school? Well, I went to a very strange school. It was a ballet school, basically. Um, I'd had difficulty settling in because when we lived in Kensington, before we moved down to Wimbledon, we went to a very sweet school. It was all, everyone was very nice and it was all very friendly and charming and delightful. Um, and actually, years later, it turned up in the Sloan Rangers handbook. So it was a sort of posh little school. And we moved down to Wimbledon. And we went to the village school, which I found a real struggle because the children were so different and our education had been quite different in London. So I struggled and I used to not go. And I I remember walking home and hiding in the garage until my mother found me. And it was all dreadful. So my mother thought, well, you know, we can't keep her there. So she had liked this little local ballet school, because very serious reason coming up, she thought the children looked so sweet in their grey blazers and their long white socks and their boaters and their white gloves. And she thought that that would be a good school for me. And actually, um, it was. I learned a lot. I was the only one who hadn't done ballet before when I joined, but I quickly learnt. Um, but the academic side was not really taken terribly seriously, although we did have some very good teachers. Um, And I did shine academically, not because I was brilliant by any stretch, but because everyone else was much more, um, you know, much better at the dance and the performing and all the rest of it. Um, So I didn't have to be very good to be better than my colleagues who've all gone on to do amazing things. So, you know, it's just... We all have different stages in our lives when we, but I did used to do well at English and history and things like that. Yeah, but how lovely that you went somewhere like that, where you just having been somewhere where you didn't, you know, didn't it wasn't quite right, and even if it was just with the lovely uniforms, but how lovely to be somewhere where you felt, you know, you obviously felt very happy there, and then you were able to thrive. Well, yes, I mean, I did. I was never quite as good at ballet and dance and all the rest of it as the other children. And as a ballet school, we had a high, you know, good reputation. And we used to enter local competitions where you did a a song and dance and a ballet and a character and a national and all those things. And all my friends were winning medals all the time. And I never did, except once um, when I won the song and dance. And um, I'm looking back and, and my mother said, you know, was obviously delighted that I'd finally won something. And then she said, but you did sing out of tune. And I thought, was well, that just something that mothers did in those days? <laughs> yeah. You know, let's not let anyone feel that they've done anything brilliantly. Just, you know, point out the errors. And I thought, would I have said that to my children? Probably not. But, you know, it's all changed now. But it was a very good learning process because I learned that, failing and trying again and failing and trying again was part of life and when I came years later to be a writer it took me lots of years of failing and trying again although 
in that case, I was trying to write Mills and Boone novels, which I never did succeed at. And when I wrote something else, it was fine. Mm. You know, I found my proper place or you know what I should be writing mm. well we'll we'll absolutely come on to that but just get, I'm sure your mum would have described it as character building I think that's what they, we were all that, that's what they describe yes. and I suppose Our characters are very built very well built characters yes yeah, they're strong character Katie which has served you well but but yeah and so did you how did, so I was gonna say that did, did that you know to be there with these amazing dancers and then you didn't that must have that really must have been very character building for you to 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 be in a school like that well, it was quite character building. And actually, the principal of the school was very, very eccentric and terrifying. And honestly, I'm hardly joking when I'm say when I say we had to bunk off to do our O levels, because it was the school was very small, so it wasn't big enough for us to take them at school. So we used to have to go off of some grim hall, some place, you know, we never had been before. Um, and it was all very stressful. But um the principal wasn't pleased that we'd um and she used to say, do ballet dancers need O-levels? In a very sarcastic way. And actually, ballet dancers need O-levels just as much, if not more, than everybody else. Because very, very, very few people actually become ballet dancers, however hard they try. Mm-hmm. But again, I mean, this is brilliant, though, because obviously going on to be a writer, you were, you were that was not really the, the norm as such. Normally, you're at schools are saying, well, you can't do ballet, you can't do this, you need your O-levels. So, I mean, it was really different. So what did you do? when you left school Katie what was your first chapter well I left school when I was 15 um, with my um, hardly won five O levels and actually I went out to work in an office and the other day I was having a conversation with my friends and they were all talking about the Saturday jobs they had and I was thinking gosh I didn't have a Saturday job I must have been very privileged as a child and then I thought no hang on Katie you had a Monday to Friday you were full time at that age you weren't we weren't you know you weren't in education then but I did subsequent and I did a, a secretarial course which stood me in good stead. And then I just started work. And um, it, it was fine. And learning to type was really, really useful. I would advise any author or any person who actually everybody, I was watching the doctor the other day in her office and I thought, are you touch typing? I think it'd be quicker if you did. But people don't learn it. They think they'll pick it up and they do pick it up, but they'd be quicker if they learned to touch type. And I just think every school should teach touch typing. It yeah. takes you know, half a term or something. Yeah, I totally agree. I've always thought that. I've never really met anyone that thinks the same as me, Katie. So that I absolutely have always thought that. Isn't that good? Yes, <laughs> it is. It is really good. And before, before we move on to the writing, I love, I mean, obviously you write romantic novels, amazing romantic novels. And I love that you met your husband on a station platform because I think that's very suitable for you, Katie, to have a such romantic meeting. So you just met on a, on a was it in the Dadoin, I understand? Yes, it wasn't quite a random meeting. Uh, my mother and I were going to stay with his mother because my mother and his mother, years ago, had been friends and they'd lost touch for many, many years and got back in touch again. I'm not quite sure how, to be honest. I think Desmond's mother got in touch with mine and um, discovered that they'd both got married and they had children and all the rest of it. And she said, and she had spent a lot of her time living in France and she invited my mother and I to go and stay with her in France. And it happened that Desmond, who was a sailor and looked so like a sailor, he looked like the sailor on the player's back. He had very vivid blue eyes and a beard and dark, dark hair. 
And um, he had decided to go and stay with his mother in France instead of going to see his father in Ireland. Um, and so they turned up to meet my mother and I off the train from Paris. And um, there he was. And I thought, gosh, you do look like a sailor. And then I was whisked off with him and a friend um, in one car. My mother went with Audrey in, an, in another car. And we off we drove into the night. And when we got to the house, um, which was charming, um, I was shown a very glamorous bathroom. I thought, that's nice. And then Desmond said, oh, the earth closet's outside. And I thought he was joking. Very lovely bathroom, but no loo, which was a bit um, of a shame. But, hey, you know, there we go. And, you know, can't have everything. No, you can't. But they, you had Desmond. And, and did you think, oh, you know, did you feel, rom- you know, did you think, oh, this, this, he's, he's rather nice in the, the romantic sense? Well, no, I didn't to begin with, but everybody decided, because there were other people staying as well, uh, that we would should be a couple. And so rather than us say, no, 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 we just said, oh, yeah, yeah. And so we did actually become a cu- couple. And as we went back on the train, I thought, gosh, you know, I feel a bit weird about this. I, you know, and I was only just 18. I'd had my 18th birthday just a couple of days before we set off. So I was really young. And I didn't feel right to have met the one when I was so young. I mean, I just, it didn't sound sensible. And to be honest, if my children subsequently had um, decided to marry the person that they'd met just after they were 18, I would be pretty horrified. Because, you know, it's too young. However, 50 years later, we're still married. So that's all right. Yeah, so it all worked. There is a happy ending there. There absolutely is. And so did you, is that when you moved to Stroud, Katie? Is that is that when you moved then? Um, no, we didn't move to Stroud. We, um, it took us a couple of years to get married. So I was 19, nearly, very nearly 20 when we got married. And I went to sea with him um, for a bit, a little bit, because we were allowed to, because he, if you were married, you could take your wife. And then we set up a business uh, with a pair of narrowboat hotels well, narrowboats turned into a hotel, narrowboats being 70 foot long and just under seven foot wide, which travel on canals, which Desmond was very keen on. And I'd done a cookery course, so I was going to do all the cooking. And we set up this business um, and we had a lot of support from our parents, I must say. I think my parents thought it was quite an exciting idea to do. And though while it was risky, as I said, we didn't have anyone dependent on us. You know, we weren't really um, slamming any doors. We could just go back. Desmond could go back to sea at any time. And um, I could always get a job as a, you know, a secretary, typist, temp. And so although it was a, a bit of a risk, it wasn't a massive risk. And we ran that business very successfully for about three years. But then eventually I, I felt I needed to have a baby and a dog and a garden and a house in no particular order. And so we we gave it up and um, bought a house and went to live in Wales, which we did for about three years. I had two children. Then we came to Stroud and we've been here ever since. How lovely. And did you live on those narrowboats? Did you live on the narrowboat when you were doing that? Yes, wow. it was our home. What was we that just like? lived on... Well, it was fine, actually. I mean, they're very easy to keep warm because they're small. Everyone said, oh, you have to be tidy on a boat. Well, to be honest, if you're basically untidy, which my husband and I both are terrible, um, you you can you just live on it like you live anywhere else. We had a nice large galley. Well, to be honest, it would be considered a tiny kitchen. But compared to what 
many people had on boats. It was a big galley um, when I used to cook all the meals for all the people, which was very exhausting. To be honest, it did put me off cooking for a very long time because it was so much of it. Yeah. And was that in London? Were you based in London doing that? No, we were based uh, Stratford-on-Avon, really. And there was something which subsequently became called the Avon Ring. So we'd go down the Avon to Tewkesbury, then we'd go up the Severn, and then we'd come up on the canals back round to Stratford. But that took us two weeks. And then we extended our trip a bit, so it wasn't quite so... Because the coming back journey was very, very full of locks. It really was very hard work. We had to go through every lock twice. And of course, we had to have people helping us. And to be honest, considering... You know, I was in my very early 20s. It was quite a lot to take on. And looking back, I think, you know, that was quite a tough old thing. But again, very character building. Absolutely. And what a character it's built. But that, wow, what an adventure as well. What an adventure. So you, so you had your three children. Now, it was after you had your third child. So by now, as you say, you're living in beautiful Stroud, that you decided to write. Is that right? Is that, or had you been writing at all up until then? I hadn't been writing at all. But it turns out I'd been talking about writing, which I hadn't really taken on board, except afterwards. Everyone said, but you always were saying. But my mother, who'd been a writer herself, had got fed up with me talking about writing and not writing. Well, I felt I had three children, an Irish wolfhound and two cats, and quite a big house that had lodgers. Um, and Desmond was away at sea half the time. I thought I had enough on my plate, which obviously didn't think I had quite enough on my plate. Um, and so for one one Christmas, she gave me a writing kit, which had all the things that we don't need anymore, like a thesaurus and a dictionary and paper and tipex, um, when it was little pieces of paper, which I don't think anyone, I mean, people remember the painting on kind, but there used to be the little piece of paper kind and all those things. And it was a, a bit of a challenge. And I said, OK, this year I will start writing a novel. And um, it was a struggle. And I got myself an ally. I thought, OK, Desmond, um, I think the children were at playgroup or Desmond was, was home anyway. And looking after the children, I said, I've got an hour. And I started and I loved it so much. I thought, this is the missing piece of my jigsaw. Because I used to wander around um, the area walking my big dog. And I had my lovely children, my lovely husband and my lovely house. And I thought, why aren't I happy? I have got it all. And I really did have it all. And I thought, why aren't you happy? And I wasn't desperately unhappy. I just wasn't completely happy. And when I started writing, I thought, yes, this is what I've been missing. This bit of um, um, creativity, I think, which hadn't been addressed, really. And once I'd started, my hour a day that I could only do when Desmond was home, you know, used to get stretched. And I used to get up really early and do it before anyone was up. And I'd go upstairs to run the children a bath and have a little bit of a write while the bath was running. And, um, you know, I just loved it. How wonderful. And you were you typing? Were you typing it or were you handwriting it? Yes. I, because I had done my secretarial there course, I did have a proper upright typewriter. And then later on, I had an electric typewriter, which was very magic. And then wonderful Lord Sugar invented the Amstrad. <laughs> and I had a word processor, wow. which I was reluctant to let go. But eventually, I was persuaded to go to a PC. Yeah. And obviously, I've been doing it like that ever since. Amazing. But no, Jill Mansell, she does it all by hand with beautiful pens, yeah, in notebooks. 
but I'm afraid I just bang away. Yeah, I can't. See, it's that typing coming in handy. You see, Katie, we're right. Absolutely. It, absolutely. <laughs> so yeah. were you, I know you were writing, you were trying to write Mills and Boone's novels. Is that, so was that because they were very a specific type of novel, weren't they? And is that what you set out doing or did you go into that? Um, I set out doing that because when I used to live in Wales and Desmond away at sea, and both my boys um, woke at different times during the night. And I was quite lonely and tired. And I couldn't really, um, you know, I, I did have friends, but not enough of them, really. I used to read Mills and Boone novels as a sort of security blanket. And to be honest, it could have been chocolate or alcohol or Valium or anything. But my prop was these Mills and Boone novels. And Desmond used to go away to sea. But before he went, he had to cut up. Um, 14 bags of tripe for the Irish Wolfhound and buy 14 Mills and Boone novels from the shop. And then he'd take them back the next time and give me the next along the shelf. And I'm joking when I say when when I'd read the entire shop, we had to move. But I'm only just joking because I was on one a day. you know. But they were my complete prop. And I thought when I became less tired, I thought, well, I could write one of these. Some of them aren't very good. And so I thought, well, I could write a not very good one. And honestly, if I heard my children saying, oh, well, I thought I could write a not very good something or do something not very well, I'd be absolutely furious. I didn't have confidence to think I can write a good one. I just thought, well, surely I can get up to this minimum standard. But actually, eight years later, I still hadn't managed, although I had a lot of encouragement from Mills and Boone. They obviously nearly liked my books but they just didn't quite and the thing about Mills and Boone they did really try to make to help you if they sent you a letter if you sent one in they would send you a letter back and it would often have an awful lot of advice in it it wouldn't just be a a, um, a rejection slip they really wanted you to succeed but I just never made it but then when I gave up writing for Mills and Boone and wrote something different I discovered how much I'd learnt from trying to write them because with Mills and Boone, you only allowed very few characters and the plot has to just keep moving along and along and along. And it really stops you drifting off into little bits just because you thought they were funny or sweet or something. You know, you had to keep the page turning. And I feel I learned that from all those years of writing Mills and Boone book novels. And to be honest, if I didn't believe that, it would have been such a waste of time. So I choose to think that I did learn a lot, but actually, seriously, I did learn a lot and um, I think it stood me in good stead yeah absolutely and I think and it this because I actually didn't realize this about you Katie I I just put because obviously because you've gone on to be so successful I always thought you were one of the ones who sent your first novel off and you know oh that there we go but I I didn't quite get I didn't under I and if I'm totally honest it it fills me with hope myself with <laughs> because I'm very much of that, you know, trying at the stage at the moment still. So, but so did you write eight Mills and Boone novels? Yes, I didn't write eight entire ones. I wrote some whole ones and some partials. But early on, um, the second one, um, I got a comment saying, could you send me the rest? And then when they, and they rejected it, but they sent me my entire file back with the rejected novel. And in it was internal correspondence saying really lovely things about it, 
which I really found incredibly cheering. And so I was inspired to persevere. But I understand that you got to a stage where you thought, well, do you know what, enough is enough, and you and you stopped. But then it then it all changed when, in fact, amazingly, it was through the Romantic Novelist Association that then you met an agent. Is that right? But because my um, word processor was in my bedroom and we had very little money and my husband had bought this for me and it was a real gesture of faith that he thought it was worth, although they were very cheap for word processors, you know, they were quite a lump of money. Um, and I walked past it every day and I found it very difficult to completely give it up. So I started writing a, a historical novel and I'd read a lot of Patrick O'Brien novels, which I highly recommend. And I thought, I'll just use his research and I'll write one. And I started it and I was about halfway down the first page when I realised some vital bit of information I didn't know. And I thought, it's going to take me ages to find this out. I just want to get on with the story. I realised, though I loved reading some historical fiction, didn't really like writing it. And just as I was doing this, I had a telephone call from a very wonderful woman called Dr. Hilary Johnson, who organised uh, the New Writers Scheme for the Romantic Novelists Association. And she said, um, I've got an agent who's interested in you. And she had actually asked me for an extra copy of a book. And I can't remember what excuse she'd given. But anyway, I said, oh, well, you know, and I just sent her one. I didn't just you know, it's OK. But she passed it on to this agent who wanted to meet me. Um, so I rang up uh, in fear and trembling and made an appointment and went up to see her in London. And goodness me, I was so terrified. I can't tell you how terrified I was. Because um, I had a job in a whole food cafe at the time. And I was earning, I don't know what, but very little money. And I didn't have masses of confidence in my own writing. However, I got there and I had this wonderful meeting. And she said, Sarah Malloy, she was called, she's retired now. And she said, don't forget that we like jokes. Mills and Boone had never been keen on jokes. Um, I think they're probably a lot more liberal with them now. I mean, we're going back an awfully long time. And then they didn't really like jokes and they certainly didn't like them being made at the expense of the hero who was the most important part of any book. And so Sarah said to me, okay, send me a hundred pages. And I thought a hundred pages is half a book. I can't do that. So I sent her um, a couple of chapters when I'd started and she didn't come back to me for a couple of weeks. And she said, I'm so sorry for the long delay. And I thought, what do you mean long delay? Milson Boone could keep you waiting a year. Wow. Wow. Um, I mean, it was rare, but it would be months and months and months. And Sarah had had a baby, so she had a really good excuse not to get back to me. Um, but she said, no, this is, um, you know, I, I love this. Send me, send me the next bit. So I sent it to her in lumps. And sometimes she'd say, great. Sometimes she'd say, you know, this needs to be two chapters. And um, eventually uh, I'd done it. But I do remember when she rang me up after I'd sent her a sex scene <laughs> and I rang up and said, oh, hello, it's Sarah. And there was this long silence and I thought, oh, no, what? And she said, linen sheets. And I thought, oh, God, are there no, no, that I didn't know, you know, is there something against, because I was so nervous and anxious and stupid. <laughs> 
and but, but they did obviously they had featured in sex scene um and actually she really liked it and she managed to find two people interested in it before i'd finished it so um wow and how did you know dr hillary johnson was she a friend of yours no, she was the person who organised the new writers scheme for the Romantic Novelists Association. And while she was doing that, she was also being a scout for Sarah, who was a new agent and didn't have any clients. She just got fed up with um, fighting for the people who had all the money. And she rather preferred to fight for the people who didn't have all the money, i.e. the poor authors. And so she was looking to build a stable, as it was referred to, um, of authors and Hillary found me and a few others and um, Sarah took me on and it was you know it was great that was the you know when my story really turned around for the better. That's amazing and obviously you joined the RNA you you were you were a member of this. Yes I was mm. they used to require you to write um, a novel if you were an unpublished author a year for assessment and it would be read by a published author and who'd be given feedback. And if they thought it was good, they'd pass it on to someone else. And my novels did used to get passed on, but they were never sort of taken up. I didn't get a lot of reports, but I got so much encouragement from them. And we'd have these lovely women would um, talk to me. The one particular one called Elizabeth, and I've forgotten her other name, Harrison, who used to write um, Dr. Nurse books. And she said, the trouble is, Katie, I don't think you're a Mills and Boone author. And I was thinking, I'm going to make myself one. You know, I don't care what you say. I'm going to be one. Um, and that was the height of my ambition. Because honestly, in those, a Mills and Boone novel was 50,000 words. And that time, general fiction was about 150,000 words, much longer. And now it's about 100. And I think my first novel was about 100. Um, so obviously you had much more space. But it was still quite weird coming out of that Mills and Boone comfort zone, which I'd been in for so long. And it was like leaving a convent. You know, it's wonderful freedom and, oh, scary freedom. Because with my Mills and Boone, I knew at end of chapter three, it all had to be set up. Chapter eight, hell in a bucket. Chapter 10, you know, sign it all off. And I knew where I was and I knew what to do. Although, interestingly, I used to run out of ideas. I never... I found ideas for Milton Boone easy to find. And now, um, although I'm not saying they actually grow on trees, I'm never without an idea. I know there will always be another idea. I think I'm better at looking and more sensitive to picking them up. Mm. You know, oh, that would make a good book. Yeah, amazing. But that was really, I mean, you say, because like you're working in your, in the, in the health food cafe and to, to to, and to, to be sort of as, as lovely as they were, to be keep being rejected by um, Mills and Boone. And then to, because I've only just joined the RNA myself, and I've actually, I, you know, I'm a journalist, I'm a, but I, I, I found it a, quite a big step to do. I don't know why, because you think, oh, I don't know. It was after I spoke to Millie Johnson, actually, and she said about it. But I was like, oh, yeah, because I think, oh, I'm not good enough. I don't belong. It's, it's that sort of thing. So for you to have done that, um, and I had, you know, I met Millie Johnson and she told me, but for you to, I think that was really brave. There you were in Starbucks with your children. You could easily have thought, oh, I'm just rubbish at this and I'm going to just give up. But you didn't. And, and you just yeah. carried on. I did persevere. I was very, very determined. Mm. I mean, honestly, it's the only New Year's resolution I've ever stuck to. 
And I just was so determined. I mean, every birthday cake blew out the candles. My wish would be to be published. I would look for four-leaf clovers so I could be published. And it was just all I thought about. Mm. And I did. I was really, really determined. But the RNA um, in those days was very small. Um, but quite early on, uh, I think before I'd gone into any meetings, I saw advertised in their little pamphlet, which was all the publication thing they had then, um, this course in Bournemouth. And so I went on the course. And of course, my trains didn't work because there was a connection that failed. I arrived late. I didn't know anybody at all. But I met people and I found my tribe. It was just wonderful because when you're a writer, it is a bit weird mm. and it's quite difficult to talk to people who aren't writers about it mm. because they don't really understand because it's so bizarre. There you are sitting around making things up. It's not normal behaviour. No, it's not. In too much detail, you just think, oh, God, yeah. just send me to the funny farm now. This is bonkers. <laughs> But um, finding my tribe was terrific. Mm. And that's definitely what the RNA did for me mm. to begin with. And then I had all this wonderful help from the older writers, the established writers. Mm. And um, gosh, nearly, I think I must have been a member for about 40 years now. I'm not quite sure. I'm a bit vague mm. as to when I joined. But if I was nearly published, I wasn't published for sort of eight years and I've been, I'm just writing my 30th book, or I have just written my 30th book, I'm not sure, I can't remember. Um, you know, that must be, it yeah. must be getting on for 40 years. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. So that moment, so from the time when you first of all started writing Mills and Boone to when Sarah said, look, I've got you a book deal, how long was that? I suppose it was, wasn't a whole year because by the time I had the appointment, I had actually finished the book. Um, and we went to just this one meeting at Penguin, which was um, Michael Joseph. And there we went and there were all these people sitting around this table. And I thought, these women have not just got jobs, they've got careers. And they all had a photocopy of my book, which I didn't ever see in my bedroom. It was a bit like sitting in a room with everybody with your dirty underwear. Yeah. You know, this is private. Yeah. Why are all these people yeah. reading it? What? And of course, it's... <laughs> and then Susan Watt, who was the woman in charge, who had a mind like a steel trap, she said, of course, we all think we know you, Katie, because we've read your book. And I thought, well, that's very nice for you, isn't it? Yes. That's so nice for me. Yeah. Um, but once they, the coffee and the tea came in, I was fine because I said, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll do this because, you know, I was working in a cafe. I was, yeah. I was okay with cups and saucers, uh, but it was a very terrifying meeting. I was really um, scared. But as I left, it's always as you go, this wonderful woman called Rachenda Todd, who still works on my books, she said, Katie, um, I quite, quite often books make me smile. And quite often they make me happy, but they very rarely make me laugh out loud. And yours made me laugh out loud. And that was just such a wonderful gift. I mean, to be honest, I don't think my books are funny anymore, but um, it, I don't sort of mind. I mean, you know, if they are, they are, but I don't make them funny. But this was a description of a keep fit class, which was the keep fit class I actually went to. Yeah. So I was writing completely from life. Oh. 
I think they're funny. I think they they make me smile. But that's well, that's brilliant because because in fact, but we will go on to that. But so from the but going back, so that was so what you're talking about? Maybe nine years? Do you think that was nine ten? If you're writing like a book a year, was it? Oh no, I wrote more than that. More than that. Um, I used to reckon to write a book a term. Right. Okay. Because they were short books. Sure. Okay. And I couldn't write during the holidays, and so I did used to really work hard, and then. The words used to fall away from me like um, dandruff. Now every word has to be forced out because <laughs> I've written too many, I suppose. You've written so but, many. You know, it's, it's sort of, I could, I used to get, you know, get get a lot of words written right. in a day. All right, but you'd, done, you'd gone through a few years and then to have that, to have all those people sitting at Penguin. I mean, did you celebrate? What what did you feel like when it was all happening? Oh. Everyone said I should have been very excited, but to be honest, I just felt dazed. Yeah. It just didn't feel normal. Mm. It didn't, I mean, it didn't feel, oh, yes, I've achieved this. It wasn't like I'd run a marathon and I'd got over the line. I just sort of thought, now what? It was all so strange to me. Yeah. Um, But, I mean, I did get used to it, but it did take me a little while. And I was very lucky in my first novel, Living Dangerously, was selected for the W.H. Smith's Fresh Talent promotion, which was sort of the Richard and Judy of its day. I mean, it was amazing because every single WH Smith had this big old cutout in the window of your mm. books and my books are everywhere and everyone reviewed it and it was amazing. And I was selected for that and that was really, really lucky. But, you know, while it was on, I couldn't go into town and go into Smith's because I was sort of terrified to see my name on a book. And I thought, why didn't I have a pseudonym? This is so embarrassing. Everyone would know how dreadful my book is after I'd gone on about it. You know, by this time, people knew. And um, that felt terribly embarrassing. I mean, I did get used to it. And then then I was having hissy fits if my books went in the shops. But, you know, to begin with, I just, I just felt sort of embarrassed. Yeah, especially those linen sheets. Exactly. Anything could have. I mean, really. Just, I mean, what an experience and how amazing. And obviously, the fact that like now that you are still, you are the president of the RNA. And also you've got the found you're the founder of the Katie Ford Bursary, sort of encouraging authors who, who are sort of struggling to be published. So that's obviously that period of time has never left you, has it? You, you really sort of empathise. But also, I know you are sort of quite honest and realistic with, with authors saying that, look, you've got to learn your craft. And, and you do have to go through this process, don't you? I do. I am honest because there's no point in not being honest. But I absolutely love helping writers. Mm. Um, I get such a kick out of it. The thing is, you can't have the joy, although, as I s- explained earlier, it was sort of wasn't quite joy. It was just all a bit confused of having your own first book published again. Mm. You've had it. You can't have it again. Um, But I do get that kick from seeing other people doing it, especially if I've seen them struggle and work and, you know, for ages and ages and then they do get published. It's it's it gives me a huge kick Mm. because, um, you know, it's just it's just exciting, really. It's like they're my children and I feel terribly proud of them, although I don't really have any right to feel proud of them. But I just sort of think, oh, yes, one of mine. (laughs) get a lovely kick yeah. so that's that's why I do it it's self-interest really yeah well you no know, but you should feel proud because I think you know I know what it's like and you know what it's like that it's so hard and again you're making up these these imaginary people and you do it and you know you're sitting there writing you're like oh god it is a bit I mean it is a bit ridiculous really but then if you've got somebody like you believing in you I think that makes all the difference 
Well, yes. I mean, if I can give people confidence, I don't think there's very much you can teach people about writing that they wouldn't find out for themselves. But if you can give someone confidence and say, yes, actually, you can write. These people are real on the page. Mm. They do make things. I do remember one of uh, one of the RNA meetings, somebody saying a thing about this character. She seems a, comes across as a bit something or other. And I thought, well, that's amazing that she comes across as anything. So she must be a bit realistic if she can make someone feel something. Mm. You know, I sort of thought, well, that's that's amazing because as somebody said to me, it's basically just marks on paper. Yeah, it is. And that's what we've got to do is make the marks on paper, which turn into real people. Yeah. And that, you know, is a bit of alchemy and quite hard yeah and it and it's an escapism and it is magic because those days where you were feeling lonely and you were reading your Mills and Boone I mean like you say look at the comfort that that gave you and it's a really magical thing if you can give that to somebody else that's definitely why I wanted to write I wanted to give that that little secret bit of happiness or that coziness of you know, here I am in a safe space mm. where nothing too bad is going to happen. I did really want to give that back because it had been so important to me and got me through some quite hard times. I mean, they weren't really hard times, but I was quite lonely. You know, I didn't know many people. My husband was away at sea, two small children who didn't sleep. I mean, it all was quite hard. That's no, that's tough. So, um, and when people complain, I hear young mums saying, oh, it's so hard when he had to go back to work after looking after the baby. And I thought, he's coming home in the evening. Mm. My husband went off for eight weeks, mm. leaving me with a tiny baby. Mm. You know, that's hard. Yeah. And so I was very happy to um, do that. And I love it when people say, oh, I read this book while this bad thing was happening and it got me through. That is a big kick. Yeah. Yeah, I bet it is. How long did you carry on working in the cafe for after you got your book deal? Um, I didn't, not really. I didn't really work after that. But it was funny because the owner of the cafe made me sit in the cafe for the entire day with a big pile of books. And she made every single customer buy a copy. Ah, that's lovely, boss. <laughs> Which was lovely. Yeah. Uh, oh, and they yeah. didn't dare leave without buying one. Oh. And of course, they were all in the cafe because I, um, Living Dangerously is set in a whole food cafe where I worked. Right. And so all the characters were there and all the, um, you know, the customers, well, not so much of the customers, but it was all pretty much as we, as we lived it, yeah. you know, making the salads and putting your hands into a great big bowl of coleslaw full of icy mayonnaise to sort of stir it in and everything. I mean, all that was very, was from the heart. And in fact, most of that first book was things I did. I used to get my clothes from jumble sales. Um, I went to that keep fit class. I didn't have, I got rid of my husband and lovely children for <laughs> the purpose, but I kept my old cat mm. who I thought by that stage was about 15 and I, I was terribly fond of her and I thought she's going to die soon. So I'll put her in my book and that'll be a nice thing. But actually I had to put her in another book later because she lived to be 20. So um, she had two books, Amazing. but um, I know it was, it, it was all of my life was in that, in that first book. Mm, and the trouble is all your life goes in your first book, let's say 40 years, whatever. Um, and then you've got to write another book and the fridge is pretty empty. Mm. All you've got is that shriveled up bit of pepper that's going a bit mouldy and a bit of garlic if you're lucky. Yeah. Because you've all you've put it all into that first book and you really have to 
drag it up out of your imagination to go on doing it. Yeah, and no coleslaw either, because you used that in the first one. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> but you, you've, I didn't realise this either, that you, a bit like being a method actor, you have, like, for your research, you have done lots of things, like uh, you're a porter in an auction house and you've made pottery and you've refurbished furniture. Um, you know, you've done actual, you know, you've gone in, and this has all been part of your research. How amazing. Well, I actually learnt about the pottery because when I set, wrote my first book, I thought I'll make it easy for myself. And one of my co-workers at, in the cafe, we all had it. We only worked a couple of days and everyone had lives outside. And this one girl, Ali, was a potter. And I thought, oh, well, I'll make my character a potter because I can ask Ali about it. That'll be fine. So I said, oh, can you help me? And she said, oh, yeah, no, that's fine. Come over. And I thought I would sit in the corner and make notes while she did some pottery. But no, she had other ideas. She said, OK, you sit here. Here's the clay. Boom. And she made me do it. And she made me get my fingers in the clay. And I thought this is such a lesson mm. because it's just so different if you actually experience it. I mean, to be honest, nowadays with wonderful YouTube, I don't experience and also COVID stopped it all a bit. I'm not quite so good at getting hands on. Um, but I, if you can actually do something, you just learn so much more because you think you know what something's like and you sort of imagine it. And then you go and meet someone and you get to talking to them or you do something and you realise, no, it's actually so much better. Mm. And so if you can do those things, I mean, the Ray Mears survival course, I think, was among the hardest things. Yes. <laughs> um, but, but great fun. Um, there were about three women and 25 men, and they were all wearing camouflage gear. And it was a bit terrifying. But actually, when you got talking to them, they were sweet and really sort of helpful and lovely. And um, it was all it was all fine. But it is good to get in among it, if you can. Yeah. That's my top tip, yeah. because you will know so much more. It will give you so much confidence mm. when you're writing something, if you actually know what something's like. Yeah. So, my first book writing about that cafe I really knew what working there was like because I'd done it mm. so I knew about the coleslaw and what it felt like and this and that and the other um when you're just trying to say well I think it'd be fun to have uh, a book set in a tea shop but if you've never worked in a tea shop you know I mean you can write it if you're just visiting the tea shop because you've probably visited one but to really know your subject does give you a lot of confidence. Yeah, yeah, it, I can imagine, absolutely. Because, and actually, it's given you these amazing, I mean, I love that, the survival. I mean, <laughs> you, you must, uh, you know, put you in any situation, Katie. But but also, you've gone on, and this is like a little side next chapter, is the fact that you, with your family, you create your own stationery and your own um, pottery, all locally sourced, and it's gorgeous. Well, that, to be honest, is my daughter's thing, because she always thought there should be a Katie Ford brand thing. And I thought, oh, I'm not sure. But eventually I said, OK, let's go for it. And it does give us a lot of fun. It isn't um, exactly challenging, um, Emma Bridgewater, but it is really nice. And it is nice um, if people want to send a book or they want a present that's a bit more than a book. They can buy a couple of mugs or tea towels or um, notebooks or various things, bits and pieces that we have. And so and now she's got a very busy job, so she's not quite so into it. Um, but that's fine. And it's it's there. And we've got all the mugs and the tea towels and um, and it's fun to have them. And if you want to give someone a little present, you know, if, you, if, you, if somebody's, you know, if you just feel that they've written a particularly touching story, 
you can just add a little tea to a towel. Mm, how lovely. And how lovely to work with your daughter like that. It is nice. She's quite bossy. It but it's all right. She has been in quite a lot of my books. Oh, well that, oh, how lovely. How You have to watch it. You know, don't upset you, Katie, because you don't want to end up being a no. baddie. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. But so, so moving on to be continued. I mean, you've done thirty books, Katie. You've got your latest one out now. I mean, I mean, what do you want to do next? You just want to keep writing. Well, I have taken on for the book I'm writing now. I've taken on something much harder than I've ever done before. Mm. It's it's not going to be absolutely classic, Katie Ford. So I hope my readers will like it. But it's so difficult. So my ambition is to get to the end of that when it's something like a book, because it's set in Dominica, a little Caribbean island. I do know well. I've got family who live there. And I went there and I asked my cousin, I said, I need this plot, help me. And he told me these things um, that it's a complete novel. I said, just one fact after another just made it more and more like a novel. But I've got to get that onto the page. So that's my next ambition. But then there's always... Um, another ambition then the book I want to you know I was the book I want to write after that is going back to my series set in the 60s mm. so I'll go back to um, the 60s for the next one mm, um, and so yeah I think I just want to keep writing yeah really yeah and do you have a writing routine as such now um, yes pretty much I sort of get up and write I used to get up really really early in the morning when my children were little or much littler and before I was published, I used to get up at insane hours in the morning in the summer holidays. And then I'd barely be conscious to stop them falling over and hurting themselves. Um, not that they remember that. I mean, I think I did sort of look after them, but I was very tired a lot of the time. Um, and I don't do that now. Although if I do wake up early, I just get up. I don't, I don't try and get back to sleep if I wake at half past five with the light, which I might do. I just get up. Um, but I used to wake up earlier than I do, but now I don't sleep quite so well. I might have been awake at four, and so then I would have gone back to sleep and sleep a bit later. But I write uh, until lunchtime, and actually I've recently started having a bit of yoghurt with some blueberries with my breakfast, and that means I get another half hour's work because I'm not hungry quite so soon, because if I'm hungry, I say, right, I've had it, I'm going down. Um, and somehow I get them done. I mean, I'm always worried about being behind um, because I think I always am a bit behind, but then maybe I'm not. I, I mean, they always do end up in, in on time, so that I must somehow manage it. Yeah. But going away for writers' retreats actually helps because you don't have the doorbell ringing and the post and all the other stuff. Mm. It's easy to just get your head down and write. Mm. And how lovely, because I read on one of your blogs that you last year you turned 70. And uh, which, uh, I mean, you know, it's just it, it, I just loved it because what you were saying is actually, you know, it's great and you're really enjoying it. And it and it looks like it's great, to be honest, Katie. It really does. And this is lovely to, to see because I'm just about to. T- well, at the end of this year, I turned 50 and there, and a lot of friends and we're all there's like, ooh, you know, and I love it because you were saying, you know, just celebrate any big birthdays. And just embrace it. And this is clearly what you are doing. Well, I was terrified of becoming 50. I really had a thing about it. And um, I wrote short stories about it. I mean, I really was worried about it. And then I thought, come on, Katie, if you don't relish being 50, you'll blink and you'll be 60. Mm. And that happened. Mm. I blinked and I was 60. And actually, I think 
you think when you're 50 that there's no more fun left, but actually there is always fun. And since I've been 70, I've just been going around saying, well, I want to do that. I'm 70. I can. Yeah. You know, so I've, I've had some, you know, lovely parties um, and, you know, lovely sort of things. And I felt, oh, it's okay. I can do that because I'm 70. Mm. I mean, you know, if I want to have a party with all my friends, I can do that. Yeah, of course um, And I think that, I don't know why, I think you, it takes me ages. I mean, some people feel like that when they're 40, but I, it took me a while. Um, but it's 70, I'm relishing it. I really am loving it. I think, to be honest, being 70 is okay um, now, in a way it probably wouldn't have been 20 or 30 years ago because people have much better health. Mm. And we're all fitter and we're all live in more comfortable circumstances and it's it's not a, a sort of difficult thing. But 50 is lovely. Um, and I, I, you know, and 60 was also very good fun. And 70 is also turning out to be OK. So, oh, you know. Lovely. And how lovely. But all that, you know, those going back to those like when you say when you're getting up so early and you've created a life and it fits it fitted with your children then you've got your family around you now you live in gorgeous stroud you know this is you're you've created it and this is what the next chapter is all about you know us all creating lives that just suit us well i have been very very fortunate and i think i get a bit annoyed when people say things like oh the harder you work the you know, luckier you get, because I think luck does pay a big part in it. But I think when we bought the house that we're in now, we, it was the right house um, that has lasted us, although we should downsize, really, I can't quite face it, um, you know, that had all our children. And then when our children had their houses and they had to move back in for a while, there was room for them as well. Mm. And so that's all worked well. We're very lucky in that our children still live relatively near. My furthest away child um is only an hour away mm. and the others are you know 10 minutes mm. so that's very fortunate which means I see lots of my grandchildren which is lovely so we you know we had there has been a lot of luck involved mm. because they could have wanted to go and live in New Zealand mm. you know and I don't see them mm. except on Skype so um you know it has been lucky but yes if you put it like that I have really created a life that suits everybody mm. um and I do think I've been very lucky. I mean, there has obviously been a lot of hard work as well. It, you know, it hasn't just come to me on my lap. But that said, it's been nice work. It's not digging a ditch. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's hard. And I, you know, I still sweat about it. And well, I actually sweat, but you know what I mean? It's agonise and oh no, and I don't know what to do and da 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 da. But you could do that doing a horrible job. Mm, of course you can. You know, you could still, you know, be suffering mm. without doing something you basically like. Mm-mm. And also, mm-hmm. you've also got all your lovely cooking you do, Katie, which I'd imagine is a big draw of going back to being on the um, narrow boat. But now you have your lovely family dinners and those cakes I see on your Instagram. It, I, I don't know, I'd move too far away. Well, I I um I do. I don't cook as much as I used to. And in fact, what happens now, which is very lovely, is that our children swoop in and they say, we're, we're coming up. We're going to cook your dinner. And so they arrive, they cook us dinner. Uh, and then we have a lovely dinner and they fill the dishwasher and then they rush off again. Um, but that's very lovely as well, because we're seeing them. Mm. It's not too much like hard work. Um, but of course, we do have lots of family lunches and things. Mm. And we very often have um, family Sunday lunch when someone will say, is anyone up for Sunday lunch? And someone will say, 
I could make an apple crumble or we've got something in the freezer or whatever, or we just buy a couple of cooked chickens from Waitrose. And we just have this thrown together Sunday lunch, which is delightful because no one's slaved over it too much. Mm. And we probably have it. We might have an early dinner, actually. So we might have it at five. Mm. So people have done their Sunday things and then they're happy to sit around the table together and then you've had supper. Mm. So that's very nice. So we're quite good about doing that. Mm, But getting around the table and I cook with the grandchildren because I never know what else to do with children, to be honest. <laughs> I've never been very good about taking them swimming, so we always do cooking. And they're quite good at cooking. The trouble is, whenever they see me, they want to cook. They can't, you know, there's nothing. Oh, Katie, we're going to see her. So what are we going to make? Can we make gingerbread bread? So I have to be prepared with Smarties and Crunchy Bars and all those things so I can... Yeah do cooking at a moment's notice with my little ones. You'll be opening your own cafe again before we know it, Katie, with all of these cakes. So for your acknowledgements, who would you like to thank who has helped you along the way? Well, I've thought a lot about this and I think I'd like to thank my mother for giving me that big incentive. And also, I think because she had faith that I could do it. And my sister also was very helpful editing my first book and teaching me how to do punctuation and things which I seem to have forgotten and the RNA I think those people um, because there are too many people in the RNA to pick out individuals Um, but those are the people I think who've really helped me get there and stay there because it's not just about getting there it's about staying there which is also quite hard Um, and those are the people I think are really responsible um, for where I am now and I'm really very very grateful because mm, you have stayed there I mean more than like 30 books and many of them have been in the top 10 Katie you know I think you're very modest in the Sunday Times I mean it's huge how do you stay there how do you every book you know create something different that does it again well I honestly don't know um, but I am lucky in that I've got a very very good editor Selena Walker she's very good we we have a sort of um we both care about the same things she sent me a lovely card of two owls um on a branch saying actually it's to whom we both care about the little bits of (laughs) ama you know we're we're sort of the same generation and she's got a very good eye and if she says I think you need to do this I might think I don't quite know why you think I should do that, but I'll do it. Mm. And then, oh, my goodness, that was such a good thing to do. So I have great faith in her, which does help a lot. Um, Because I think what writers always get the blame if their books don't sell. But an awful lot of the time it'll be because they haven't been well published or they've been unluckily published or they've come out at the wrong time. And, you know, they've just sunk without trace. And it's nothing to do with the book. It's just all to do with unfortunate timing. And so that's also where I've been so lucky to have good publishers. So I must thank them as well Mm. for where I am. Yeah, that's just, I mean, how incredible. But how lovely that even after all these years, you realise, you know, you're not very much, oh, look, I know best. I'm Katie Ford. You know, you're still listening. And that's probably a lot to do with it. Oh, you must never stop listening. Never stop listening. And um, if somebody 
I mean, I don't um, do every edit that anyone ever suggests to me by any stretch. But if somebody says something about, you know, a sentence, whatever, I think, oh, I don't like that. But I will address it somehow. I thought, oh, well, that needs attention. I must give it attention. And I just think if you're arrogant as a writer, you know, that is your doom. I mean, if you are genuinely a genius, I'm sure you get away. I'm sure it's fine. <laughs> but um, I'm not a genius and um, I'm just a writer. And I do take editing seriously. I take suggestions seriously. And as I say, I don't always do them, but I will think about it and make sure I know why I'm not doing it and make sure there's a proper reason. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, so I'm never going to be, I mean, I'm always going to be Katie Ford, but I'm, I hope I'm never, I did once years ago say to someone, if I ever start getting snooty about my edits, can you kick me? And so far, no one's had to kick me. No kicking, that's um, good. But I just think because it's, um, you know, I've heard of people who said, no, well, I couldn't do that. It changed my book too much. And they've sunk without trace. And that's a shame. Mm. I mean, they might be writing absolutely perfect books, but no one will ever know. Mm-hmm. Well, on that note, so moving on to the final section, tips and advice. So two things I'm going to ask you, Katie. First of all, staying with writing. So, you know, your advice, I mean, for somebody like me uh, and other people listening who, you know, I've been, I'm writing now my fourth book and I've, I've never, you know, I've sent off to agents and all that sort of thing. So I'm very much in that stage where I just, you know, you keep going. And I I think sometimes, and I've self-published the ones and it's, it's lovely. What is lovely is now I have a, a small mailing list and I'm starting to get feedback. Um, and I love that. And I love it. It's great when it's your friends telling you how great you are, but also when you're having people that you don't know who've read your book, that's where, you know, so that is really helping me. But I'll be totally honest, sometimes it is hard. You sit down, you're like, oh God, you know, am I I just make, am I just, being a fool to keep going you know because it's you know that thing oh here we go and you know when those negative voices come in so Katie what would you say to somebody like me and somebody else listening who's writing and they keep going they haven't been published yet and they have those negative voices what would you say to them I would remind them that I was writing for eight years before I had anyone remotely interested and well let's say quite remotely interested but you know before I had Um, a publisher and it was 10 years before I had a book on the shelves and I've met other people who've taken even longer so I'm all for perseverance if you really want to do it you've just got to keep on doing it and pick yourself up and carry on I remember reading a lovely um, how to write book called to writers with love by someone called Mary Wibberley, who was a very successful Mills and Boone novelist. And she said, you can cry for a day. And then I thought, crying for a day, what is the point? Just get up, just go back and just think, how can I make it better? And that's just what you've got to do. And you will make it better. You learn from every book you write, every bit of writing you do, you'll learn something and you will get better. I mean, it's hard to see that when it's just you and your word process, you know, laptop whatever, because, you know, there is no one pointing that out to you. But honestly, trust me, you will be getting better and it is worth it. And if you really want to do it, you must just keep at it mm. and you will get there. And it'll, it will come to, to you know, a better stage and the complete stranger will say, your book really helped me through that hard time. Mm. And then you 
know that you've made it. Yeah, that is. I mean, that is absolutely good advice. And for somebody, so away from writing, when how you felt, you know, when you were, had your lovely children and your dog, but you felt earlier, you said, you know, you felt like there's something was missing. So if someone's listening to that now and they feel the same, and okay, they might not want to do writing, but they feel like something's missing. What would you say to that person? How how do they find the missing jigsaw puzzle like piece that you did? Um, well, I suppose everyone's missing jigsaw puzzle is different. But what I did is I cleaved for myself an hour a day for me. And it meant I stopped ironing um, and meals got a lot more slapdash and all that stuff. I mean, it wasn't, um, you know, I was a much better housewife before I was a writer. And some of my mother's-in-law, I had two, did make a note that this was true. Um, so I think if you can find yourself a bit of time that's yours and try and find what that missing piece of creativity is, and if you can sew or you can knit, gosh, I wish I could knit, uh, or write or paint, whatever, and just give yourself a little bit of time, which is yours, even if other people do suffer like they don't have things ironed. To be honest, they can cope. You know, it's not that big a deal. Lots of quite grown up people don't earn anyway, even if they're not trying to be a writer or whatever. <laughs> you know, just have that time for you. And you and say you're worth it. It's just such a cliche. But really, why aren't you allowed it? If, if one of your children or your husband said, I just need an hour to go running or do whatever, you know, if you love each other, you'll say, go for it. Anything that's good for you. You know, it's good for everybody. And I do fervently believe if it's good for the mother, it's good for the family. I think that's the trouble with mothers. They think that they have to do everything for their children and be all things to all people and carve their children's lunches into animals and, you know, all that stuff. <laughs> you don't have to. Your children will be absolutely fine if you don't and probably better if you don't. They'll be more self-sufficient if you let them cook their own meals in the summer holidays, which mine were doing really quite, I want to say cook. No, they did cook, but they were doing it really quite early on because I wanted to write. Um, and so I'd say, I'm not going to do you lunch. And there was always stuff in the fridge, but they, and they learned, they're all quite good cooks now. And my boys actually learned before my daughter, but now they're all really good cooks. So, um, you know, that was quite useful. So, you know, take that hour for yourself and try and find that jigsaw piece, which does make you content. And it does make you appreciate all the other things you've got as well. I mean, I, I at least I had the insight to realise that having a, a lovely husband and lovely children and a lovely dog and a lovely house and all the rest of it was a great big, huge blessing. And I wasn't sort of just discontented for no reason. And once I did find the writing... I was then very happy with my, my my dog and my children and my husband and my house and all that. You know, I mean, I was busy, but then we're all busy. But I did really enjoy it and think, well, I'm very lucky to be here in this situation. Mm -hmm. And well, thank goodness you did. I've got one last question before we finish. I know that you go away with the amazing, you know, Jill Mansell and Millie Johnson and just fab Joe Thomas, fabulous, fabulous writers. Do you ever use any of those ballet dance moves that you learned when you were a child? I can see you all dancing now around your big kitchen tables. Do you ever do any of that? Do you know, we don't do, if we do have a dance and I, we might, um, we're not doing ballet. <laughs> We're doing a little bit of a disco. I mean, Joe Thomas has certainly got some moves. I bet. Um, 
yeah. So um, no, we're not we're not doing ballet. But I mean, I do think all that discipline actually was really helpful, and um, you know, it sort of talked to me about perseverance and picking yourself up and just trying again. And I do think this is what you have to do if you're a writer: just keep going. Keep. You wouldn't have started being a writer if you didn't want to be one in some way. Um, so just persevere and you will get there. And also read a lot. That really helps. If you're stuck, um, sometimes reading some, what someone else has done, I mean, it won't really come across in your book as the same, but it just thought, oh, yes, that's quite a good plan. If they do that and they do that, and you can bring it to your own work. So, yeah, but no, we do, we do, we might well have a dance but it's not ballet. I'm sure it's amazing. Katie, you're amazing. Thank you so much for being such a fabulous guest on the next chapter. Oh, it's been so much fun. Thank you so much for inviting me. And let me just say, since our recording, it's been announced Katie has won the Lifetime Achievement Award at the RNA's annual awards. I mean, just amazing. Congratulations, Katie. It is so well-deserved and I hope you've had some wonderful celebrations. But I love that, don't you? If you have a feeling something is missing, just take a little bit of time. Go on, look, I know you're super busy, but just maybe one episode less of that Netflix show and just have a little think, write some things down. Look where it's taken Katie and who knows where it might take you. Katie's latest book, One Enchanted Evening, is out now. You find out all about this and all her other books and her gorgeous pottery at her website. The link is in the show notes. And of course, I would love it if you kept in touch with me at elliebarkerwrites.com. If you sign up to my mailing list, well, I send you some little notes about my books, more next chapters, and my favourite bit of all, you can let me know how you're getting on. You're listening to a Flower Pot production. I'll be back next week, but in the meantime, take that just a little bit of time. What's your missing piece? I think you can find it, and Katie does too. Speak soon.